Pachango. you're feeling good. Hope everything's going swell for you out there. This episode of Tangentially Speaking is with Peter Anderson, who is uh, an awesome guy. He's super smart, tons of experience, poetic imagination, a very good writer. He's a poet. He's an essayist. He is an editor. He's written a bunch of books himself. He's put together books of, of other people's work, which, you know, that's something you only do if you're a generous spirit. Uh, we talk about some of his books, but here are some titles. Going Down Grand, Poems from the Canyon. Uh, that's an anthology of Grand Canyon poetry, which gathers the voices of cowboys, explorers, river runners, hikers, artists, geologists, rangers, and others whose words bear witness to this complex and magnificent place. Uh, another book is called Heading Home, Field Notes. Um, it's sort of, uh, it's described as a Dharma bomb. It begins with Peter's Dharma bomb passion for the road, which leads him through the mountains and deserts of the American West. And eventually lands him in an eccentric end-of-the-road town full of mystics, misfits, and mountain dwellers. Same town I'm in, same town we sat in when we recorded this. I hope this will be the first of several episodes with Peter. He's, I mean, there's no way with any of these people that you get the full story uh, in an hour or two. Um, and one of the great pleasures of this podcast is that it puts me in rooms with people I really enjoy being in rooms with. So I'm going to, I'm going to leverage the podcast as much as I can to hang out with Peter. Uh, before we get to Peter, my conversation with Peter, there's some things I want to tell you about. Um, first of all, one of the great things about having the podcast is that sometimes I'll see something that'll be like, oh, I could really, I could use that. I wonder, I wonder if that's the kind of thing, I mean, would that company give me one of those if I mention it on the podcast? And is it the kind of thing that my audience would actually like to know about? Or am I just being a shithead and trying to leverage my tiny little sliver of fame for, a, you know, a couple hundred bucks for this or that? Sometimes it is that. But a lot of times what I try to do is I keep it to only things where it's a win-win-win situation. Obviously, I'm winning because I'm getting something I want for free. The company wins because they get publicity for virtually nothing, you know, whatever their cost is to, you know, manufacture this thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And hopefully you're winning um, because I'm telling you about something that may actually have some use for you. And sometimes I do it when there's no sponsorship, you know, like the the uh, the Philips One Blade. Everybody got to get a One Blade. They're awesome. Never shave again. I've never received a penny or a blade from Philips and Orelco or whoever the fuck makes that thing. Um, but they're like 29 bucks on Amazon. And 
a blade lasts a few months. I mean, at least if you shave once every week or two, the way I do. Uh, no nicks, no no scraping your skin, no rash, no bumps, no weirdness. They're just awesome. It's like occasionally technology reaches an apex, and I feel like I feel like the e-bikes uh, from BMX that were given to us, or is it BMZ? Jeez, I fucked that up. Uh, were given to us years ago. They just couldn't be better. I, I mean, maybe the batteries could last longer or something, but, uh, you know, whatever. It's like the, the MacBook Air. It's If it were smaller, it would be too small. If it were lighter, it would be too light. Like, I don't know how it gets better. Um, yeah, so sometimes technology reaches that point, and being a bit of a naysayer when it comes to technology, I feel like I have a responsibility to you know, go counter to type and acknowledge, uh, you know, give praise where praise is due. And sometimes it is. So a year, maybe two years ago, I was looking for bear spray because I had bear spray in the van and it had been in there for a few years. And I don't know if it's just time or if it's the heat or what it was, but the bear spray just kind of like lost all its pressure. So if a bear actually were to charge me and I pulled one of these things out and squirted it at the bear, the bear would laugh at me. I'd have to like hit the bear in the face with the can to get any of this, you know, pepper spray on it. So anyway, I was looking for bear spray and bear spray is expensive. I mean, a, a can of bear spray is like 30 bucks or something. So anyway, I was looking online, like, what's the best bear spray? What's, you know, what's the deal? How long does it last? Should I refrigerate it? I don't know. I was trying to inform myself about bear spray. And somewhere I saw a reference to Burna, B-Y-R-N-A, which is a company that I guess they got their start making um, paintball guns. And they have expanded into i think the the phrase they use is non-lethal armaments or something like that um basically what it is is a co2 cartridge pistol uh that shoots these round like marble sized pellets and they make different pellets like they make some of them are green they're biodegradable so if you're you know just out fucking around shooting rocks or cans or something you don't need to worry that uh the pellets are are um you know destroying the environment or messing up the water or you know if something eats one it's gonna die or be poisoned or something they're biodegradable non-toxic i think they're just made from flour or something uh, and then they make other pellets that are heavy. Um, so if you were to get hit by one of these, uh, you would feel it. Like they're, they'll put a dent in, in the side of a car. Like the, they, I don't know what the velocity is, but it's significant. So, you know, that could be for personal protection or, um, you know, uh, against humans, possibly, uh, or against, uh, you know, a bear or something. But then they also have pellets that are pepper spray, and then they have others that are like nerve gas. So I don't know if you're trying to quell a riot or something. <laughs> I guess you use those. But the pepper spray are the ones that I got for the bears. And it's got a good range, like a much better range 
than a can of bear spray, which I think is about 20 feet. And with this thing, I can hit, uh, you know, a eight inch diameter tree trunk, probably 50 to 60 feet away. Uh, so it solved a big problem because, you know, we spend a lot of time in the van and we've got food in there and, um, you know, we try to be careful and clean up the campsite at night and all that. But, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're, if you're grilling, you're not going to, how are you going to get rid of the smell of, of fat? You know, it's in the grill, it's on the coals, it's everywhere. So I'm aware of the fact that uh, sometimes we must smell a bit like bear bait. And we're up in Idaho, Montana, Colorado, there are bears all around. Um, but I don't want to kill a bear. I don't, and I don't want to hurt a bear. Uh, and so sometimes we, some trips, like we had a, a pistol in the van, <clears throat> but I was never comfortable with that. Um, because as I said, I, I, I can't imagine, I mean, other than a bear, like, you know, is, is coming straight at us and wants to kill us and it's, you know, 15 feet away and, there's just absolutely no way to escape it. I can't imagine another situation where I would actually shoot a bear. Um, and, you know, I, it was a 38. And man, if it's a grizzly bear, it's going to laugh at a 38. And even a black bear is not necessarily going to be stopped by a 38. So even then, it's like, what am I going to do? I'm going to wound it. It's going to turn and run away and then die a horrible death in the woods. Like, that's not a good situation either. So anyway, I had this this pistol in the van for a while. And, uh, and it was also concerning because in some States it's fine and other States it's not. And, you know, I never get pulled over. I'm a fucking old white guy in a silly hippie van. Um, but if I were to get pulled over and for some reason the van was searched and I, you know, it could, it could lead to serious issues depending where I was. So I wasn't comfortable with that either. Anyway, so I, I read about this Berna thing, and it seemed like a great solution. And they sent me one of their non-lethal firearms, and it's awesome. I've been I've been carrying it for you know in the van for a couple of years now. Um, and every once in a while, I'll take it out and practice with it just to remember how it works and all that. Um, anyway, I just mentioned this because I know a lot of you are in vans and you might be thinking the same things, right? Like, well, I want something for protection, but I don't want to deal with having a firearm in the van. I'm crossing state lines. Um, you know, there are bears around. I don't want to kill a bear, but you know, a little pepper spray, uh, would probably go a long way. And if it's got a 50, 60 foot range, you know, uh, you're not waiting till the last minute as you are often with bear spray. So anyway, Berna, B-Y-R-N-A. I'm a shithead because it's been a couple of years and I keep forgetting to mention it, but now I've mentioned it. Uh, what else? Another thing to mention, uh, if you listen to the recent Romas, they were a bit controversial. Uh, some people uh, push back on some of the things that I was saying. Even the, the fact that I said anything, I, I think a lot... Some of the people who were upset just wish I would never mention people like Andrew Tate or Tucker Carlson or or um, what's his name, the fat loudmouth um, Alex Jones. Um, 
you know, and, and especially not mention them in the context I did, which is to say that, you know, I find these guys repulsive and, uh, you know, I'm definitely not a supporter of any of them, but they do say things that resonate with millions of people and that's worth paying attention to. Um, and they say some things that even resonate with me. And I think it's, that's a mental discipline that I find to be extremely important uh, just to keep my shit in check, keep my ego in check, keep my arrogance, my, my you know, tendency toward pedantry, keep it in check by noticing the things I agree with coming out of the mouths of people that I don't find myself in alignment with at all. Uh, I know, I think that's becoming even more important. I mean, I've explained why I think it's important for me on a personal level. And it's important in science, right? It's part of the scientific process. You have a theory. You look at the evidence as objectively as you can, but with the understanding that we all have confirmation bias. We're all subject to confirmation bias. We tend to see and hear the things that support our argument. So at some point, you need to say, okay, what doesn't support my argument? What undermines my argument? What, where are the places I can be wrong? And you need to have the intellectual humility to entertain those thoughts. That's my position. Some people disagree. Some people say, if the person is has done horrible things or has been accused of horrible things or has said horrible things, then I don't want to hear anything they've said. I guess that's fair enough, but that's not where I am. And that's not where this podcast is. Um, you know, I've had people on the podcast who have made serious mistakes. Um, I don't have people on the podcast that I'm going to have arguments with in a, in an aggressive sense. I'm not looking for that. There are a lot of podcasts out there that do that. They want to have these contentious, um, call it a debate, but normally they're not debates. They're just awkward, difficult, fruitless conversations. I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm not looking to dominate anyone or, you know, and ultimately I control the microphone and I control the editing, which makes it not fair because if, if, I come off looking like a shithead. I can just delete it or never post it. Um, I, I don't want to do that. There's enough of that out in, in the world. But I'm, but I don't shy away from having people on the podcast who aren't necessarily likable, who, you know, don't have great social skills, who uh, may have done things that they regret. Uh, you know, I think we all fit into that category. Um, and... So I feel like we're in this weird, or maybe it's not weird, it, it feels cyclical, but I feel like we're in a time where if you agree with me, you're one of us. If you disagree with me, you're one of them. Uh, whether we're talking about, you know, LGBTQ rights um, or we're talking about, you know, Donald Trump or we're talking about the war in Ukraine 
or we're talking about whether or not the world is ending and, and humans are responsible for climate change and we can do something about it or we can't do something about it. All these issues are so nuanced and complex that I feel like anyone who's doing any kind of independent thinking is never going to come down 100% with this group or that group. And so our groups get more and more fractured and we find ourselves more and more alone and friendships are harder and harder to maintain and communities are are are, are just falling apart because if any area of disagreement becomes a cause to end the relationship, then we're not going to have any fucking relationships. Because, you know, if if 50,000 people are listening to me right now, there are not two people among those 50,000. Even if you're sitting there hand in hand listening to this podcast with your soulmate, there are things you guys don't agree about. There might not be many, but there are things. Maybe she believes in God and you don't. Maybe she thinks there's an afterlife and you don't. Maybe she's a vegetarian and you're not. You know, I mean, there there are so many things. And we're all a collection of so many individual decisions that change over time. So maybe when you got together, you were both vegans and now one of you eats burgers. And if that's enough to end the relationship... Well, then you're not going to have a relationship. And I feel like that's what's happening on a social level. And so it's super important, I think, not only for our individual mental health and intellectual integrity, but for the survival of the species, the planet, and our communities that we learn to listen to words of people that we don't agree with or even find repellent in some ways. Because no one has a monopoly on truth or insight or intelligence. And the fact is, Andrew Tate has said a lot of shit that I find absolutely horrific and I would not want to hang out with the dude. And if I did hang out with the dude... It would probably be pretty uncomfortable (laughs) for both of us. But I think mostly for him because he's a child to me. He's a wounded, desperate child. And, um, yeah, anyway, I don't know. I don't really want to talk about him anymore because it gets people all riled up. And that's not why I'm here. But... I just want to reiterate the importance of giving an ear and an open mind and an open heart to not necessarily people. If you've written someone off and just said, you know, fucking Donald Trump is such a monster. I'll never, ever um, respect him. Okay, but listen to what he says and notice the way millions of people respond to it because that's a window into something important that's happening in the society. And if you are avowedly against the things that he's saying and doing, then you need to understand that, right? You don't go into war wearing a blindfold. 
And so if you see yourself as being vehemently opposed, well, that's all the more reason to listen to what these people are saying. Uh, all of this is a way of saying that on my website, chrisandryan.substack.com, I did something I haven't done before, which is to um, respond to some of the criticism that I received either comments that I saw on the Reddit, the tangentially speaking subreddit, or people who commented on Substack, or people who sent me emails, or whatever, you know, Twitter, or whatever uh, platform. Um, and I put some of them up and responded to them uh, publicly. Initially, for the first week, I made that for um, supporting paying members only, but I just opened it up for everyone. So if you're interested in some of the criticism that I received and my responses to it, you can find it on my Substack. I think it's, let me see what it's called here. Listener feedback on Roma 66 and 67. You'll see it there. Okay. And lastly, uh, the Sexaton Budokan retreat is pretty much filled up. I think uh, they had some, I don't know if somebody pulled out at the last minute or what happened. I mean, I gotta tell you, I'm not super involved in the organization of all this. I'm kind of a hired gun in this thing. Uh, I love Cameron and Melaine and I love the opportunity to go and hang out with them, uh, and spend time at their place in Montana. Um, but they do these retreats all the time. So they've got a whole, infrastructure in place. They've got someone, uh, an assistant who handles the applications and tries to put together, you know, the best kind of group because they get far more applications than there are spots. Um, and I think in our case, it's probably especially complicated because we're, we're merging these two things, right? Like Cameron and, Mer and Melaine teach martial arts and, and yoga and movement. And it's all this sort of physical bodily stuff. Anya's going to be teaching some contact improv, um, dance things. And then, you know, the other angle that, that Anya and I bring to it is relationship stuff, sexuality, um, you know, in my case, prehistoric ways of living and, and how these things reflect on modern life and modern relationships and so on. And so I think what they are looking for is to have a group that's not like a bunch of movement people who are, you know, not that interested in where I'm coming from and not a bunch of sexaton people who aren't really interested in the movement stuff. They're trying to get a good mixture of people coming at this from different angles and bringing different interests. So if you've applied and you haven't heard back, my apologies, you'll be hearing back shortly because I think they're finalizing it now. Um, and um, if you're interested and you, you're looking for something to do from August 20th to 25th and you can get yourself to Whitefish, Montana, uh, by all means, to send in an application. And I'll tell you, the application they have, it just sort of says, like, how did you hear about this? And, you know, what do you want to Why are you interested? And some people just put like one sentence. Oh, I'm interested because I like sex at dawn, or I'm interested because, you know, I got nothing to do in, in August. Um, if I were running this, I would ask you to write 
a page or two, right? Like, I think that if you're seriously interested in doing this, the more you can tell them about who you are and where you're coming from, the the more attention your application gets. So if you want to do this, you want to come hang out with us. And I got to tell you that, I mean, look, I think what I have to say is interesting, but you've probably heard it all by now. <laughs> so, and if you've read my books, it's like, okay, I know what that guy's shtick is. Um, you know, and, and I think that there's value in, in obviously what I bring to it and, and what Anya's bringing to it and, and what Cameron and Melaine are bringing to it. There's a lot of value in all this. It's a beautiful place. I mean, most of the food is coming right out of the garden. We eat at these tables in the garden. It's, there's, it's just a awesome. There's a cold plunge. There's a sauna. There's, there's lakes nearby where we go swimming. And it's just a beautiful environment. But I have to say, I think the biggest value of coming to something like this is that you meet other people who come to something like this. Right. So it's really about community building. And I know for I'm still in touch with several people from that I met last year. I know that people who met at the thing last year are still in touch with each other. I get photos from, you know, a guy who's living in Texas and a Canadian woman. And for some reason, they're in Hawaii together. <laughs> I don't ask questions, but good for them, you know, uh, and, and a bunch of other people who met at the at the event last year are are in each other's lives in one way or another. So that I think is the main value of this. So if you want to join us, go to budokon.com. That's B-U-D-O-K-O-N.com and you'll see upcoming events and it's the Sex at Dawn Retreat, August 20th to 25th. Okay, I had a whole other thing I was going to talk about, but this has gone on for 25 minutes already, so I'll talk about that another time. Uh, that's uh, my friend John Stevens, who I've known, whom I've known since 1983. Met him in Alaska the day I got out of prison. Uh, he sent me some letters that um, he found somewhere that I'd sent to him back in the day. And, uh, yeah, so I'm going to talk maybe in a, in an upcoming, um, episode, I'll talk about the experience of reading those and, and some of the things that some of the thoughts that were triggered by reading my own words from how many years ago was that 17 and 23, 30, 40 years ago, man, life is a dream, huh? Uh, yeah. So Peter Anderson, you can find more about Peter Anderson at PeteHowardAnderson.com. That's his website. And it's got, uh, his books and, and, you know, his, uh, a bio and, uh, a contact. If you want to get in touch with him, you can reach him there. All right. Thank you for listening. I'm going to play you out. I was, I was thinking, there's sort of a convergence of things here. Uh, a friend of mine, Riley, um, was visiting. Riley's a backcountry skier, mountain climber, you know, outdoors dude. Quite serious outdoors dude. And um, we were 
listening to some music and I guess we were talking, I guess he mentioned something about avalanches and how avalanches are more likely in Colorado than in Washington state where he grew up because of the, the water content of the snow, I guess. Anyway, I was, you know, when you mentioned avalanches, I, re- I was reminded of this song. I, I think I've played it once before on the podcast. I don't remember which episode, uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful song called Border Country. And the story of the song is just, just insane. Um, the lyrics were written by a guy named Johnny Cop who my buddy Riley knew. Uh, jo- uh, Johnny started the Adventure Film Festival, I think in Telluride. And um, there's an interview, I'll link to this interview, um, with the lead singer of The Paper Stars, um, Trey Altman, uh, who was a friend of Johnny's. And so the story is, uh, I'll just I'll just read you what, what Trey says in this interview. He says, uh, Johnny Cop was one of the greats. Aside from being a well-known, highly determined, almost superhuman athlete, he was a compassionate friend, a talented writer, a Jedi of the simple yet abundant life, and he loved music. He was a gifted flautist and percussionist, and any chance we had to jam together, we would. Uh, he is missed continually by those who loved him, and his life remains a great source of inspiration for countless people. He wrote Border Country in his journal just days before he and his mates died in an avalanche. And the pages were found in his pocket, folded up, buried in the rock and ice. His parents asked me to put it to music, so I did my best. Um... At the article that I'm I'm gonna link to, there is a photograph of the actual pages, the paper that were found in his pocket in Tibet, um, where he died in the avalanche. And the it's it's astounding. Okay, um, here are the lyrics. Here it comes to take me down taken me down with a thundering sound. Okay, this is a song about an avalanche. This is a song about dying in an avalanche found in the pockets of this guy who died in an avalanche. Here she comes with arms spread wide calling me back from border country. Now, where is border country? Is border country where he is in Tibet, maybe it's close to the border with Pakistan or his border country where you are when you're doing something extremely dangerous, where, you know, you could die at any time between life and death or is life itself something that takes place in border country because we come from death. We arise like a bubble that we know is going to burst. All bubbles burst. We come from death, we go to death. We're in this liminal space between pre-life death and post-life death. 
But of course, we don't know. Maybe pre-life death is also post-life death. And maybe post-life death is also pre-life death because we just keep going around and around, right? Maybe the bubble bursts. But where does the soapy water go? It goes back into the cup and forms another bubble, right? The bubble bursts, but the soapy water is still there. We live in so many manifestations of border country. Back to the song, inch by inch, step by step, shadows are running in both directions. Interesting, beautiful image. Cowering down from the echoing sounds, bringing us face to face. Tighten my boots, make a run, turn to see that my thoughts untied. Standing still in the blazing sun, nowhere to hide in border country. Grabbing at the earth, holding on tight, wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight. Pull out a penny whistle, let the old man dance, buying my ticket out of border country. Now, when you look at the pages that he wrote this on, you'll see that there are very few corrections. This came out of his head onto the page pretty much as is. The only thing that he changed is the song was written describing someone else's experience. So here in the final version, it says, tighten my boots my thoughts untied, wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight, buying my ticket out of border country. Originally, he wrote, tighten your boots, your thoughts untied, wishing for your mama and your sweetheart's delight, buying your ticket out of border country. And he changed all those yours and made them my. As if when it first came out of his head, it was a song about someone else getting caught in an avalanche and dying, buying their ticket out of border country. And he changed it and said, no, this is a song about me. And then a couple of days later, it happened. Extraordinary. Okay, this is Border Country by the Paper Stars. Lyrics by Johnny Cop, followed by my conversation with Peter Anderson. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Sending out lots of mountain love to all of you. Well, here he comes to take me down. Take me down with the thundering sound. And here she comes, arms spread wide, calling me back from border country Well inch by inch step by step shadows are running in both directions I'm cowering down from the echoing sounds bringing us face to face Tighten my boots, make a run, turn 
see that my thoughts are tied Standing still in the blazing sun Nowhere to hide Here in border country Well here it comes to take me down Take me down with a thundering sound Here she comes, all spread wide Calling me back from border country Well, inch by inch, step by step Shadows are running in both directions I'm grabbing at the earth Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Grabbing at the earth, holding on tight Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Grabbing at the earth, holding on tight Wishing for my mama and my sweetheart's delight Here in border country called Night Ride in the Red Desert, which is up in uh, southern Wyoming. Remember when you were headed west out of Wamsutter, measuring the after-midnight miles with a half-emptied six-pack, and you had the hammer down and nothing but empty up ahead? Remember somewhere west of Bitter Creek, you stopped for that roughneck renegade, leaning into the wind, who told you he was so hungry he could eat the ass off a skunk? Remember the eat-em-up truck stop neon blazing like Christmas with the voltage cranked and all those big buckets of bolts blowing diesel in the parking lot? Remember how your roughneck pal went silent over chicken fried steak and how you picked up a piece of pecan pie from the Pleistocene and how the cat-eyed waitress called you hun and made it all okay? 
Remember dropping your new friend off at daybreak, Highway 189 north to Diamondville, and how he told you to keep the shiny side up and the greasy side down, and how you said for sure, and how it was easier to believe back then that everyone was a good buddy just waiting to happen. Oh, man, that's nice. That's nice. Which one were you? Were you the driver or the rough the driver, neck? yeah, yeah. And that guy was, God, he was hungry. He, he uh... He had hitchhiked out to um, the northwest from Buffalo for some job, you know, and it had fallen through or, yeah. or had played out or whatever. And he was hitchhiking back home to upstate New York. And he, he literally didn't have a penny in his pocket. I hadn't eaten in like two days, you know. It was just, mm. Yeah, so it was just one of those uh, encounters that uh, leave a mark. Yeah, do, do you... Do you do anything intentional to keep a door open to randomness? Wow, that's a great question. Certainly not as much as I as I, I might have back in, in those days when we were traveling that way. Right. I mean I think I guess travel would be the the main way for me nowadays. And when Grace and I travel we tend to we tend to not plan it too much. Yeah. And leave you know, leave the window open for the spirit to blow through, so to speak. Right. You know, um, we travel that way in Cuba, for example, and and uh, with with our family, with the girls in Ecuador when they were young. Um, but you know, when I'm home, I I, I guess other than just sort of uh, you know walking into the hills and and just or or wherever and just kind of letting things unfold. I mean, I kind of, I kind of know what's going to happen for the most part. There are no big surprises, you know. Yeah. Occasionally there are. I ran into a mountain lion one time. That was interesting. But um, I think you wrote about that. I did. I yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's a really good question, Chris. And I don't know that I do that very much. I might like to do it more often than I do. Yeah, I think about that because it. I agree. Travel uh, for me also has been the sort of widest avenue for serendipity to to appear in in my life and when i'm not traveling uh sometimes i start to feel like something's missing and i don't know what it is because it's so hard right the the nature of randomness is that you can't put your finger on it yeah you don't know what you're missing because you don't you can't see it right right that's the whole point but uh yeah, just that piece you read made made me think about how when you're traveling or you you pick up a hitchhiker, you you strike up a conversation with a stranger, you know, sitting next to you on the plane or whatever, yeah. it just opens up to a breeze that brings things that you just can't possibly imagine. It really can enrich life, and it's such a tragedy in American culture that you know, we're indoctrinated with fear of strangers. Yeah. And, um, which I guess is justified in some ways, but I, I love traveling in places where people are not afraid of strangers, like Mm -hmm. Ireland. Uh You walk into a pub in Ireland and everyone's just like, all right, so what's your story? You know, (laughs) it's cool. I mean, that just enriches the experience of life so much. Yeah. 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 I think travel is really important that way. I mean, and it helps keep things fr- keeps it helps keep things fresh, you know, because um, it's hard to keep things fresh if you're if you're doing more or less the same thing every day. 
yeah. in the same place. Right. Um, but I, I tend to, you know, more of my days are spent that way than, you know, out and about and we'll, yeah. we'll see what happens. Well, it's also exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. I mean, we can't do that all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's start back in the day you I, I was listening to your reading the other day and I, I, I talked with uh, Kizan and Janet the other day yeah and it, it's funny uh, you know I said something about uh, you know when when they were up at St. Elmo and, and Kizan said oh I wasn't in St. Elmo that was Pete <laughs> he was up there and saying I don't know what he was doing all the way up there but that that was Pete uh so you've known Kizen for what thirty years or something? Yeah, we go back to the late seventies. So it's been almost. Uh, let's see. Oh wow, fifty. Is that right? Is that right? Let's so, see. Let's see. Seventy-eight to now. What? Eighty would be forty. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so yeah, forty something. Yeah. Forty and change. Yeah, and um, Saint Elmo was was kind of a random thing, Chris. I had uh, I had just gotten a job working on the Arkansas River, you know, as a, as a boatman. And um, at that time, the the whole river thing was just starting up there. Right. There were like three river companies between uh, Buena Vista and Canyon City. That so, was you, so you say Buena Vista. You know, I held out. I lived there for seven years. <laughs> and I refused to say Buena Vista. Buena just, Vista. It's such a weird, like, American, God damn it, I'm going to uh, say it the way I want to say I, it. I held out, even though it identified me as somebody that, you know, wasn't from there originally. Right, right. Said, Screw it, you know, yeah. I'm calling it what it should be called. It's, yeah. And but, Salida, too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For but, people who don't understand, I'm what, what we're saying is these are Spanish-named towns, and the locals pronounce them in a tortured, non-Spanish accent. Yeah. Buena Vista. Yeah, Buena Vista? Buena yeah. Vista, right? Yeah. 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 Or they used to, you know, people used to call it Puny Buny. And now a lot of people call it BV, which, BV, yeah. which is good. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's a way around this right. whole thing. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, anyhow, I, you know, I, I had gotten this job and I, I drove up Chalk Creek where, where Kizen lived, looking for a, a place to live. And um, the guy I was working for lived up that way and he had told me about Kizen and, and the young people that were living... Uh, in this sort of, a, I wouldn't call it abandoned, but uh, it was a church camp that was no longer being used. Mm -hmm. And somehow they had just kind of come in and, you know, claimed their space and worked it out with, with somebody. Um, and I'm sure Kizen explained that in, in uh, your conversation. But So I went there and I looked at this old cabin that didn't have any windows and I thought, well, shit, I could, I could fix that up. And then I kept driving up the road um, you know, and, and the, you run out of pavement, and then the road gets kind of steep, and it follows the old railroad grade up to uh, this little mining camp called St. Elmo, which at that time was a pretty sleepy place. There was uh, a little general store that was open in the summer. In the winter, there was nothing open, and there was there were, I don't believe there were any permanent residents at that time. There was one woman who worked at the, at the Buena Vista prison who, who came up, periodically in the wintertime, the snowmobile and stuff. Um, but my first winter up there, I think I was just about the only person living there full time. And the 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 snowplow did come up to to right to the cabin where I was living. Hmm. That was the end of the county road. Hmm. 
So it got plowed all the way up there, as long as there was somebody up there to plow for. Mm. You know, so they were plowing a couple of roads just because I was living up there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you were how old? I was uh, I was finishing up college, you know, and I took my time through college. So I was in my early 20s, like 21, 22. So you're 21, early 20s. This is 78? Se- 77. 77. Yeah. All right. Right in there. So 77, what's happening in the world in 77? Uh, Jimmy Carter's president. Jimmy Carter's in there. And uh, a lot of people were starting to talk about alternative energy. Right. And um, he put solar panels on the White House. Yeah. It was a, people it was, to wear it was a, a sweater. It was a turning point that unfortunately didn't turn the right way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but I was interested in that kind of stuff and had gone to this little alternative school back in Maine called College of the Atlantic, and everybody was talking about, you know, uh, appropriate technology and, and alternative designs and all that kind of stuff. Young people today don't know that it's almost like we were, like you said, it was a turning point. We were, Carter was trying to get us on the right track 40 years ago. Yeah. And then Reagan came in, and those guys just fucked everything. Yeah. And we spent the last 40 years trying to get back to where we were yeah. in 1978. It's so true, Chris. I, I really believe that. Um, yeah, we got James Watt, you know, came in with the... With Who just Reagan. died yesterday. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, well, the rest, Secretary of the Interior. Rest in peace, James. Fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah. He's the guy who said, like, trees cause air pollution? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah he was bad news. Yeah. But anyhow, um, I was more into the into the kind of philosophical end of that inquiry of human ecology, mm. you know, people in place and nature. And so, while I was back there at the at that college, um, and I'm I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I'll, I'll weave it back in. Um, I got really into that, and I as part of my final project, I, I wrote up a big um, paper on. It was an inquiry into deep ecology, which was just starting to emerge at that time. And so, explain what, what deep ecology is. So, so deep ecology was was kind of a, a synthesis of natural philosophies, borrowing, say, from from indigenous people, from systems theory, from ecological science, from um, uh, poets and writers. Um, and, and there were a few principles involved. One was, was the sense of everything being interconnected, which is a Buddhist idea and a, and a you know, Native American idea. Um, the importance of diversity, which is really an eco- ecological idea. You know, if you have a, a field full of, of different kinds of plants, you know, that's going to be more resistant to changes in the climate and whatnot than a monoculture. Yeah. You know, and so people took that basic concept and, and applied it to cultures as well you know a community is better when it when it's more diverse it's just more resilient and um, so interconnectedness diversity uh, bioregionalism was a, was a really important piece of the whole philosophy and that was the sense that we should operate on a more decentralized basis um, based on watersheds as opposed to political boundaries so for example here, you know, we're part of the Upper Rio Grande. Bioregionalism was an idea that, that I thought was really, really cool. And that was starting to happen out on the West Coast. Um, a guy named Peter Berg in the Bay Area was part of that movement. Uh, Gary Snyder, of course, the, the poet. And 
Um, How old are you? Are we the same age? I'm 67. Early? Oh, a little older than me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. But just, I'm 61. Okay. I'm just th- I'm just wondering, like, the parallels. Um, yeah, I also went to a liberal arts school in the Northeast, you know. Yeah. And, um, but so you, but your degree was in deep ecology or? Human ecology, human was, ecology. The, was the degree. And everybody, was like 120 people at College of the Atlantic and everybody got the same degree. Ah, okay. And within that umbrella, you know, you could, you could study marine biology. It was right on the coast where the mm. school was, you know, or you could get into environmental economics or environmental design or, and like I say, I kind of drifted off into literature and philosophy and just thinking about you know how we how we envision the world, how we think about the world, how we see ourselves belonging or not belonging in the world. That was interesting to me, and um, and still is. It really kind of laid the foundation for everything I've done since. Was that a like a revelation that came to you in your late teens, early twenties, or was that something you would trace back to your early childhood? No, I no, I was not connected to my place. You know, when mm-hmm. I was growing up, not really. Um, I grew up on the North Shore of Long Island and uh, spent summers on a little island off the coast of Connecticut, which was really a neat place. And I, I guess I was connected to that place. But um, no, the, the sense of, of um, connection with place really didn't happen until much later. And it was kind of informed by the sort of stuff I was reading at College of the Atlantic. So talk about that. What were you reading? Gary okay. Snyder, well, you Yeah, mentioned. like the, the deep ecology stuff that we just talked about. Right. Um, you know, really, really basic ecological philosophy like, you know, Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac. Um, right, who who had a place down here in, in New Trace Mexico. Piedras, yeah, 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 I've dri- driven by that in Aldo Leopold House. Yeah, isn't that something? I was associating with um, Wisconsin, right? Yeah, exactly. Just, That's yeah. where Sand County is. Right. You know? mm. But uh, yeah, he was down there in the Carson National Forest for for quite a while and married a woman from... Either Santa Fe or Taos, I can't remember which. But uh, anyway, Aldo Leopold, to me, the the land ethic that he had in, in San County Almanac was so solid. You know, mm. a thing is right when it's right for the whole biotic community, not just right. you, you know. It's just basic. It's yeah. So that was that kind of stuff was was the was the bedrock, and then you know I was also reading people like Wendell Berry and right. um, who's Gary, still writing, who's I mean. still writing, yeah. who's still doing it, and Gary Snyder, who's still yeah. around too. Yeah. Um, and those guys, those two people, you know, more than anyone, gave me this sense that um, that we really need to think of ourselves as citizens of a specific place, you know, and claim it and, and, and get to know it and sort of be advocates for it and um, celebrate it and all that. And right. So that was, that was my roadmap. And I thought, okay, I need to go find a place because where I grew up isn't it. Isn't that that's such an American conundrum? Yeah, to to want to be at home in a place and then say, okay, now I have to choose it. Yeah, because there's no deep family tie to a village in the Pyrenees, or you know, there's no kind of oh, I'm Basque, right? Yeah. There's no yeah. there's no regional identity yeah. or anything like that. So true. Yeah, I mean, for for a lot of us, let's put it that way. I mean, there is for some people, and say like you know, growing up in New England or say, the Great Lakes states, or, right. or even out, out here, you know, in the transient western U.S. I mean, yeah. some people have it, but for those of us that don't, um, then you're, you're, you're right. It's a conundrum, and how do we, how do we know when we, when we get to that place, um, you know, what kind of commitment do we make to it? Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with restlessness and, like, 
well, this is okay, but that place over there, yeah. you know, looks really good, and that community's doing some cool things. Right. Um, you know, and at first I thought, you know, when I lived up in St. Omo, and again, I was just a college student then. I, I was coming there, you know, to write, to, to work on the river. Uh, eventually I started living and working there year-round, doing river stuff in the summer and carpentry and stuff like that in the winter. And, and then eventually started working for the newspaper in that valley. But I, I really thought at that time that, okay, this is the place. I loved it. I just, I, I fell in love with the place. And, and how did you get from Maine to, to central Colorado? Well, um, so I, I had been out to Colorado College for a couple of years. Oh, and okay. I was sort of a disillusioned anthropology major. <laughs> I, I, you know, I just kind of stumbled into that because... I couldn't think of anything, any other way to kind of tie my interests together. Right. And then my a friend who had been there and had gone off to College of the Atlantic came through and told me what he was doing out there at, in Maine and told me about how everybody was designing their own majors around an environmental I thing. see. So you started at Colorado. Colorado College. And then yeah. and where did you grow up? As I grew kid? up on the North Shore of Long Island. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, we already, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Massachusetts. Um, and um, right. and places in between. Right. But um, yeah, so so I didn't I didn't have that uh, sense of home growing up. Really, interestingly, my parents were, you know, had relocated from Pennsylvania to the East Coast. What part of Pennsylvania? Uh, Pittsburgh area. Yeah, I yeah. grew up in Beaver Falls. Is that near? Uh, uh, it's an hour north of Pittsburgh. Okay, they grew up in Swickley. Yeah, no, I know Swickley and Aliquippa and yeah. Newcastle. Yeah, I I lived in that area till I was fifteen. Okay, and then moved to Fairfield, Connecticut, across the sound sure. from where you were. Yeah, wow, we got a lot in common yeah. in that way too. Yeah, um, yeah, they 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 were transplants. They came to the East Coast for work. Their parents were had moved from you know where, where they grew up, so it was almost like you know coming from a couple of generations of relocated people, right? With with no sense of of continuity or or, no deep, roots. or, or deep roots. Yeah. Uh, other than my grandmother, who who had very deep roots in Mississippi, and even though she lived in Swickley, she still stayed connected with those roots. Mm. But and then yeah. Anyway, I could go on. But it's it's interesting that you know again this this very American experience which yeah. I, I share with you the yeah. the sort of nomadic movement 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 and and I think it can create in us uh, you know like everyone misses what they don't have and yeah. I think it can create a yearning for some sort of depth. You know, we've got so much horizontal in our lives, and and we're lacking the vertical. Yeah, I think you're right, and um, yeah. So I, you know, kind of had that hunger from you know from the early 20s on, and like I say, I thought the Arkansas Valley was going to be it. Mm. But um, you know, the flip side of of you know living at the end of the road in the mountains and enjoying the solitude and you know getting some good reading and writing done is uh, dead of winter when you're thinking, boy, it sure would be nice to, uh, you know, have somebody to stay warm with. Right. <laughs> Especially when you're a young guy. Oh, my God, you yeah. Know, you know, yeah, and there's just, yeah. you know, there wasn't much going on at the Lariat Saloon in the middle of winter <laughs> down in PV, you know. And yeah. so, um, yeah, so so really that, that as much as anything, and, and the other thing was at that time, that valley was going through some hard economic times because... Uh, the Libden mine up in Leadville had shut down. Mm-hmm. 
So all the way down the valley, you know, uh, BV, Salida, um, you know, storefronts were boarded up. Right. People were going, were out of work, um, all that. And a lot of my friends, you know, who were seasonals or, or were patching something together like I was left the valley. So in addition to, to that loneliness in the middle of winter, it was like, God, my friends are all taken off and going to California or wherever they're going. You know? Right. So I, I kind of followed that wave and ended up down in Durango for not very long, about a year, year and a half. Hmm. Um, anyhow. It's not very far, though. No, but it, but it was uh, definitely a lot livelier, you know, more of a, a yeah. tourist town and, yeah. and a college town. Right. Um, maybe more importantly. And um, so, yeah. But St. Elmo, I still dream about the place. It's just, really? it really, that place was really important to me. And um, I ended up writing a little history of it when I lived there, which was really, really cool. How, how many winters did you spend there? Um, probably three or four, you know, and then I moved down to another, uh, another ghost town that was west of BV. I lived in an old place up there. It was a little bit closer to town. Mm-hmm. I was doing, I was doing newspaper stuff then. So I couldn't just live up in St. Elmo and do that. I had to be within phone contact, you know. It's an interesting thing to be a resident of a ghost town. Yeah, <laughs> it know? was, it was. It's almost like... I don't know, have you read Edward Abbey? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think he has an essay somewhere about being a fire lookout. Yeah. And I've, I've, that's something I always, especially when I was a young guy, I always thought, man, I'd be perfect for that. Yeah. I'd love to spend a summer right? on a tower yeah. somewhere yeah. and have yeah. someone bring me my food. And- well, listen, Chris, I, I, I set you up with my friends, um, uh, Rick Frymouth and Linda. Oh, what's Linda's last name? Anyway, they're over near Dolores in the probably one of the few working fire lookouts left in Colorado. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know there were any. There's yeah, there's one that I know of. Huh. Yeah. And they're they're, they're working for they're the forest. Yeah, yeah, they're there. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, you'd have fun talking with them. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd yeah. be fun to go. Yeah. I mean, just the the way I mean, I love weather. Yeah. That's one thing. Me I too. I love lightning and thunder yeah. and, you know, I just I love I love to feel insignificant. Yeah. Uh and isn't that part of the this yearning that we're talking about to be connected to the natural world is that it it liberates us by reminding us of our insignificance? I think so. I think so. Sure. I mean it's like the uh you know all the great Chinese paintings, you know, show the mountains as being huge and mm. vast and then you see these little tiny Right. I've got them. Let's see. Like this. Yeah, the, the person is always just like a little Right, a little detail. Yeah. But um, no, I totally agree. I totally agree with you. I think that's that's a big part of it. And um, yeah. And if someone were going to do a painting of us right now, we would be these tiny little human figures with these fourteen thousand foot peaks. Yeah. I mean that. I mean they they start a mile from here or something. I mean they're yeah. they're really close. Yeah, not even. Yeah, for sure. Um, maybe maybe the image I'm getting is like. Um, if this house was was lit up at night, let's say, and there'd be camera angles way out, the uh, camera's way out there somewhere, and it's shooting, it's it's this place is small, but it shows two little silhouettes, and then these huge, yeah, you know, huge mountains beyond. But driving into Crestone, I remember the first time I, I drove into Crestone. It was about it was late afternoon. The sun was, you know, back in the west. Yeah, 
and the this range was lit up in a way that coming up the T road, I felt like I was driving into a movie set. Yeah, totally. It just doesn't feel real. There's something about the scale yeah, that. No, it's absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, I think of these mountains as the poor man's Tetons. I mean, they're 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 just as as radical as the Tetons are in terms of just being in your face. Right. Um, <laughs> but you know, you don't have to be a multi-million dollar right uh, person to to live here. I remember, so far, I remember reading when I lived. I lived in Manhattan for a while in the '80s, and there was a like a satirical magazine. I forget what it was called, um, but they they did. It was kind of like the Onion, but before the Onion came. Yeah. And uh, they they had a uh, a feature where they had written to the Nat- National Park Service, pretending that they were offended at the name Grand Tetons because it means big tits. <laughs> and yeah. they had the response from the Park That's Service, really you know, taking it very seriously, yeah. this complaint. And, you know, we've yeah. we've sent this up to the director of blah, 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 but we don't think we can change it. At oh, this that's point. really funny. That's so really funny. every time I hear the Grand Tetons, I think big tit mountains. Yeah. yeah. And they're a drop, uh, what's called a, um, I think it's called a drop fault basin, just like we are. Mm. And just like the Wasatch Front in Salt Lake, where you have a valley that's kind of pulling apart, and and some uplift going going on too, and so usually in that kind of situation, you have one face of the range that's really steep, like we have here, and then on the other side, not so much. Oh. Same with the Tetons, you know, really steep on the Jackson side, kind of right. more gradual on the Drig side. Interesting. Um, Wasatch Front, you know, just these big faces on the west side, and then the east side, kind of. But yeah, so that's what's going on geologically. I mean, in a very general way. But uh, are they still? Is it still an uprise? Yeah, a uh, couple of couple of I don't know eight. I don't know, like a foot a year or something like that. Oh, really? I think it's that oh. much. Yeah, which explains like a lot of the you know rock tumbling down. Sure. Uh, the Creston conglomerate, which is such a beautiful, oh, isn't it? Yeah, it's so. I we looked at it. There was a house <clears throat> out in the Grants. It was for sale. Like, 800 grand or something. It was a big, yeah. beautiful yeah. place. No yeah. trees. Yeah. No trees at yeah. all. But it was beautiful. And yeah. in the kitchen, they had a big bar top that was just a slice of conglomerate. Oh, how cool. Which, I mean, I don't Damn, know how, how they you? did it. Yeah, it's so, no kidding. It's so hard. Yeah. But it was just like a three-inch thick. And just smooth? Smooth, polished, uh, maybe four feet wide. 15 feet long Damn. i mean it might have been fused i, I didn't look that yeah. closely yeah. but wow i wish there were more of that around. oh boy no kidding so for people who don't know what we're talking about there's a type of conglomerate rock here that only appears here it's crestone conglomerate i guess a geologist would look at it and know immediately yeah um and conglomerate means it's it's rock made of other rocks so you'll pick up a grapefruit-sized rock, and you'll see five or six different colors in it, green and red and gray and blue and all these different rocks that got, I guess they were in lava at some point, and it solidified, yeah. and um, and then it, they get rounded because they roll down the mountain, and they're in streams for millions of years, and it's uh, 
pretty spectacular. I, it, I, it I really give them as gifts to everybody. Oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, that's a nice idea. You know, it's it really is an unusual rock, and it always makes me think of the Big Rock Candy Mountain. You know that old folk song. Yeah. Um, is that Guthrie? Woody Guthrie? You know, might have might have been. I, I know Burl Ives sang it. Uh, I can just hear his voice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you're so you're in St. Elmo. You go down to Durango. At this point, are you writing, or are you still doing the river so, thing? Or? Yeah. So 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 I kind of hit a hit a um, a place hit a wall when I was about 28, where I'd been doing this thing of you know running the river in the summer and doing carpentry in the winter, and and um, I just realized you know hey I I, I just I don't want to continue this routine indefinitely, and uh, um, and I knew I didn't. I didn't really feel like I was uh, that good at carpentry. I mean, I could do stuff, but but my my brain would tend to wander and mm. you know, daydream a lot, and you know that doesn't really mix well with with the yeah. trades. Yeah. So I thought, hmm, that's this. Yeah, it doesn't feel right. So I I kind of you know like say I hit a wall, and it was kind of a, a depressive time for a little while, and then I just thought, well shoot, you know, I know I can write well. And, and, you know, I got that kind of feedback at College of the Atlantic. I thought, well, maybe I need to, you know, put that more on the front burner, be more of a writer. And so my first project was writing a history of St. Elmo. Right. Which um, was great fun. I, I spent a lot of time looking at microfilm in the uh, Salida and, and Buena Vista libraries, reading the old newspapers from... Were you doing this on spec or did you get yeah, a Yeah, no, contract? totally. No, I did, I did myself. And... I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to print this book up. Hmm. Um, that little book, you know, has done so well. <laughs> it's in like his tenth printing now. No kidding. And I make a couple of grand off it, you know, every with every printing. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, because it's there's so many people that come to that town and want to know about it. Right. So the only place that that the, I bring the book to sell is up there at the trading post. Right. And they'll sell a couple hundred copies every summer. You know? That's fantastic. But. At that time, I just thought, well, this is really interesting to me. I want to know more about this town. And so, um, fortunately, there was a lot of good material locally at the at the library's uh, old microfilm of the of the uh, early Chaffey County Times and Mountain Mail. So, what it was a mining town? Yeah, it was a mining town. What were they mining? Gold, silver, and uh, there was a railroad that went through there uh, and went through the Continental Divide. Really, through the Alpine Tunnel. Yeah. Wow. So it was a fascinating place, you know, and and had all the, you know, the usual, um, um, you know, phenomenon of of high country mining camps back in those days. You know, was, things got pretty wild, and uh, there were a couple of pretty active saloons, and uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, ladies of the night. Oh, certainly, yeah, yeah. And, so uh, you're talking eighteen seventies, eighties. Yeah, the the town was really peaking, like. Early 1880s, 1880, 81, right in there. In there. And there was still a lot of Indian presence. Uh, Some, and, and starting to be, um, you know, a Chinese presence. Right, for from, the tunnels and the railroad, yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah. and uh, so so that was an interesting thing to, to, to see how that, you know, kind of race, racist phenomenon played out in the papers, you know, mm. anti-Chinese um, sentiments and whatnot. But, but there were a lot of different nationalities there too. You know, mm. a lot of um, you know Europeans and, and whatnot drawn to the mining, seeking their fortune. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was very diverse, and, and you know, hard to imagine. Um, it really would have been more like Pittsburgh, 
back in the day because they were smelters and and trains and you know when I was up there it was just totally quiet you know yeah. nobody around but but you know back in the day it would have been not that way at all yeah yeah it's a strange thing in Colorado you see um like you you see evidence of the past in ways that you don't in other parts of the country because yeah. you see these old mining shafts and yeah. little old cabins in ruins and some railroad track here and there. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a little more rawness to it. I think, you know, I'm just yeah. thinking about other parts of the country where there's a lot of history that is either there and has been taken care of or it's not there at all. Right. Like Boston or yeah. something. I mean, I lived in Spain 20 years. So to me the this American sense of history is kind of silly. Yeah. You know, oh, it's 200 years old. Don't touch that. And <laughs> right. in Barcelona, the, you know, you'll sit in a bar next to a wall that was built by the Romans. It's yeah. like an incredible whole yeah. different scale. Yeah. And here, you know, I mean, anything going back to the late 1800s is is old stuff. Yeah. In the West. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But it isn't old. You know, Joe Rogan has this whole routine where he's talking about history and he's like, you know, he says we should measure time by old ladies, uh-huh. right? Like an old lady's 90 years. Yeah. And he'll say, you know, one old lady ago, <laughs> you know, I mean, what, one old lady ago, it, we were, it was World War II. Yeah. You know, like yeah. we were worried about Nazis and, right. uh, you know, and then two old ladies ago, the, the Apaches were causing nice. trouble. That's a, that's a nice way to humanize it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it doesn't work for geological time, but uh. no, that's a lot, old ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I, I started writing about uh, evolution, and uh, it took me years to wrap my head around a um, hundred thousand years. Uh, you know, like you're able to do that. Well, I'm able to pretend I can do it. <laughs> I mean, anything anything beyond a couple of generations is snaps my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I, I interviewed a guy recently, um, John Colopinto, who's a, a staff writer on The New Yorker, and he um, I, he came to my attention because he wrote an article about uh, a tribe living in the upper Amazon, the Pinahan. And um, the this, I guess, the reason that they sort of came to the attention of the linguistic world is that their language is very unusual. In fact, their language appears to contradict uh, Noam Chomsky's idea of universal grammar that all the human brain is designed in a certain way to... Anyway, I won't won't get into all that. You can listen to the episode if you're interested. But um, they're really interesting people because they... Their culture and their language is designed in in such a way that it makes it impossible to get into abstraction. Mm. So a famous anecdote is that um, there's this linguist living there and he, he was a, a missionary initially. Yeah. And he was sent down. He's one of the few Western or white people who can speak their language. And uh, so he was, you know, preaching the good word to them. And after a few weeks, a couple of the guys sat down with him and they said, um, you know, uh, this guy, Jesus, did you know him? And he said, no, uh, he's lived a long time ago. And they, did your father know him? No. Did your grandfather know him? No. 
then stop talking to us about this guy. All right? That's good. They're just like, if you don't have a direct connection to something, not interested. It's it's just doesn't exist for us. Uh Reminds me of a thing. I I have a friend, Stanley Krippner, who's like sort of a mentor in grad school. And one time we were going somewhere and I said, you know, I presented him with some question we were driving and... And I said, like, if you could sit down and have dinner with, you know, anyone, living or dead, who would it be? Yeah. And he said, oh, I don't, I don't think about things that can't happen. Huh. And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, a long time ago, I decided I wouldn't waste any mental energy contemplating things that are impossible. Yeah. So if you rephrase the question, living people, then we'll talk about it. But dead, I don't, I don't, I'm not even going to entertain it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I can kind of relate to that a little bit. I mean, I, I feel like I'm drawn to, I, I'm not I'm not really that interested in reading fantasy, you know. Yeah. It's just not a thing that I, I'm drawn to. That's how I feel about comic books, too. Yeah. I've yeah. never, like, I don't get it. Like, yeah. what's the entertainment here? Yeah. Or video games. Right. No, there's so much, so much stuff that's really ha- that's that's really happening. That's real. fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, why bother with? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I guess it stretches the brain a little bit, but um, but fiction. I mean, you read fiction. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. So fantasy, I guess, could just be called another kind of fiction, right? Yeah. Although um, I don't know. There's you know realistic fiction, and then there's. Uh, I just I just read a book for a book club called Remarkably Bright Creatures, um, which. I wasn't crazy about the book, actually. But in that book, um, a woman befriends an octopus, and the octopus has a voice, and, you know. Right. And I I can kind of get that. I mean, I, I like to play around with um, personification sometimes when, I, when I'm talking about, you know, natural phenomenon, but a little bit goes a long way. Right. You know, and you, and you want to be careful with it because uh, in some ways it gets in the way of really seeing something. Yeah. But... Um, I don't know. Even that little bit of fantasy where the octopus was was speaking, you know, in, the, in these alternating chapters, was I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know if I can buy into that. Yeah, that's how I feel about musicals. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, there's only one musical I've ever seen that I liked, and it was uh, it was all Louis Jordan's great great hits. You know, Louis Jordan, no. Five Guys Named Mo. Uh huh. Um, Beans and Cornbread had a fight. Um, what are some of his other cool songs? He's an old, you know, New Orleans jazz guy from uh, the swing era, uh, who was just really clever and funny and wrote wrote some really funny songs. Uh, um, but anyway, that that musical I love. But I also remember seeing Meet Me in St. Louis, and thinking I can't stand these songs. <laughs> you know, Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis. You know, it's just like they're earworms, but they're earworms of the worst kind. Because, right. You know, it's just. I don't want to be hearing the song in my head. Well, I just have this trouble. I, I feel I, I, I had a, a friend, a gay guy, who one time said to me, "Chris, you're gay in everything except your um, your your hatred of musicals <laughs> and your the fact that you're not attracted to men. <laughs> Other than those two things, you're I consider you gay. I took that as a great compliment." Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, for me, the problem with musicals is you got to pick a lane. Yeah. Either I'm taking this seriously as a drama, right, 
or it's a concert. Yeah. But you can't have both. I can't be following the character development yeah. and yeah. whatever, you know, is being worked out between the different characters. And then suddenly they break into song and then they're like, yeah. okay, now we're back to our conversation. And if you're gonna have if you're gonna have music and dancing kind of interrupting the story it better be damn good i mean like for me for me like singing in the rain is is one that works yeah, you know okay. that's just beautiful to watch right you know those right. guys are something else yeah and they're funny you know they're good they're yeah it, yeah true it has to be sort of acknowledge that it is absurd yeah. there has to be something yeah. there yeah yeah i don't know i guess the south park guys did a, a musical the mormon oh yeah thing i haven't yeah. seen it yeah no it's worth seeing I, yeah. i've heard it's really yeah, good yeah there's some great stuff yeah so you're okay. So back to you know resident of ghost towns. Yeah, I think that's what we'll call this episode. <laughs> okay, Peter Anderson, ghost town resident, uh, repeatedly. Right? You said you, you lived in two different. Oh uh, uh, well, yeah. Well, one was called Harvard City, and it was just a really just an old um, corral and and cabin west of uh, west of BV, uh, about six or seven miles. It's still there, I think. But um, yeah, that was kind of a, just a one, one cabin um, establishment. Saint Elmo really, really was a town, and still feels like a town. And what is Saint Elmo? The fire, Saint Elmo's fire. Yeah, there's that, and there was a, a romance uh, novel, you know, back in the in the day that I guess was popular with uh, miners and prospectors called Saint Elmo. Oh, okay. That was what they named the town after. Well, that's interesting for yeah. a literary guy. Yeah. To be living in a ghost town named after a, a forgotten book. <laughs> yeah. I think I tried to read some of it one time and it was just so syrupy and so you know so romantic that I just couldn't couldn't deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you're at that point you were talking about your late twenties, you know, astrologists would say your Saturn was returning yeah. Uh, other people would say, you know, that's what happens in your late twenties. You yeah. try things and you you realize what doesn't work, and yeah. so you have to sort of abandon your anticipated life, whether it's a relationship or a job or whatever, and yeah. start over, which is hard. Yeah. Um, but looking at it from our advanced age now, we we would probably tell people, don't worry about it. That's just part of the process. Sure. And I've met a lot of people that, you know, at age 28, which I guess would be the Saturn's return or whatever, you know, or, or Steiner had something about every seven years something happens. Or, mm. I don't know. But I've met a lot of people that, you know, had something significant happen at age 28 that kind of shifted their direction. If you're a rock star, you die. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, right. There's a transition for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, so, so I guess the continuity and the thing that was important to me about St. Elmo, again, was... Okay, this place is important to me, so I need to get to know it. I need to be a good student of this place because I'm not from here. Right. So that whole thing of being a student of wherever I was living, in order to be, um, you know, a better um, inhabitant of the place, was important to me. And uh, starting with with Saint Elmo and and the Arkansas Valley, and then subsequently just about every place I I landed. Um, Except that there are a few years where I was kind of bouncing around a bit, but certainly here, uh, you know, that's that's been a part of my my desire, and um, also in the Four Corners area where I was uh, living in various places in the Colorado Plateau. Um, so yeah, that that whole thing of uh, just being a good student of your place, right? Uh, which which I picked up from 
you know, Snyder and, uh, you know, and Wendell Berry and people like that. It's also, I mean, it comes down to respect in a way. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's, it's like caring about where your food comes from or, you know, wanting to have intimacy with the person you're being sexual with or, you know, whatever. It's, it's not skating across the surface of, of things. And in that sense, I suppose you could say it's kind of countercultural because, you know, the tendency in in modern America is is to be transient, to be right. It's it's kind of unusual to um, to be one place for very long, unless you unless you like where you grew up, or you've got a, a family history in a certain place, or or you have no choice, or you have no choice. Right. Yeah, which is huge. There are a lot of people that you know might like to be somewhere else, but they just can't be. Do you ever miss the the East Coast, the the broad leaf trees and the lightning bugs and? You know, I've had I've had a chance to go back for some um, sort of extended forays, and um, and I love and I love various aspects, some of the ones you just mentioned, but I also get a little claustrophobic. It's pretty tight. quickly. Yeah. yeah, you get. It's interesting in life how, and having written about prehistory as much as I have. One of the, the the sort of tests that I use and to see if not determinative but uh, suggestive if something is naturally human yeah. is how quickly we get used to it. Yeah, and yeah, space is something I feel like we get used to really quickly. Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. It's interesting. I mean, I I'm really interested in the way. People are drawn to specific places. The way they kind of make a map for themselves of where they are and and how they fit in a certain space, um, you know. And certainly, the psychology of space is really interesting and, and important too. Like, what is it about um, you know this particular uh, version of space we have right here, where we see thirty or forty miles across the valley off to the west and we can see the weather coming in, which I love too. You mentioned mm-hmm. weather earlier. Yeah, I mean, being able to see the weather moving across the valley is just exquisite to me. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, it's just it's just so lovely and so um, fulfilling. To, I mean, I could just sit around and watch the weather and feel like the day has not been a waste. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and um, so that that's just a remarkable feature of, of living where we do. I think, and and what kind of. Uh, what kind of impact does that have on our psyches? You know, just just having that amount of space, being able to watch the weather. When I was back in, in New Hampshire, it was I had a residency back there for a year um, in Exeter, New Hampshire, and um, it took me a really long time to figure out what north, south, east, and west were. I was so, mm. I felt so disoriented. Where's mm. where does the sun come up around here? You right. Know? Because um, there's no sky. It, yeah, or, or you know, you're driving down these roads where where the trees are just you're driving through a tunnel of leaves basically. Right. And right. I found I find that kind of interesting, but I also found it kind of unsettling a little bit. I I guess I've gotten so used to the amount of space we have out here and just being able to orient yourself by a distant landform or something like that, mm. having a, a full view of where the sun's coming up and going down. And, the moon rising, etc. But um, yeah, there, there are certain things that, of course, are really, really nice about the East, but they're fun to be around. But uh, ultimately, I, I remember driving back West after that year and just kind of feeling like I was shedding all this 
um, kind of subtle tensions, you know, just from, say, like living within 10 miles of an interstate, you know, that vibration. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know. I didn't even know that I was absorbing that, you know. But we lived in the middle of this sweet little New England town, but we were also a block away from the firehouse, and, you know, the street sweeper would come through on a certain day, right. and, um, you know, the train, which I grew up near some railroad tracks, so I kind of liked that. Uh, but that would come through, you know, at four o'clock in the morning. I mean, the different noises that here we don't have. We don't have that. Yeah, and um, it's just amazing, you yeah. know, to to um, to be able to experience the lack of man-made sound. You probably know that um, the uh, north side of the sand dunes is the second quietest place in the National Park Service. Apparently, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, huh. as far as ambient, you know, man-made noises are concerned. Huh. And uh, the first, the first one um, I heard is out in the uh, Olympic rainforest. Uh-huh. But right down south of us here, you know, on the northern edge of the dunes is the second quietest, and that's kind of amazing to me. I mean, we're not that far from Highway 17, maybe 10, 12 miles as the crow flies, but we're far enough away, and there's, I guess, you know, little enough traffic out there to where, yeah, we're we're right. And very infrequent air traffic. Yeah, not too often. Yeah. Occasionally, uh, fighter jets will fly over. That's yes. interesting. I've noticed that lately, and, and I noticed too they're flying over the middle of the valley. Uh-huh. Because back in the '90s, there was a big to do here about right. fighter jets flying over, you know, over here, over our town, and uh, you know, the people that were were here because they wanted to um, set up a, a spiritual retreat and a quiet place. We're kind of upset with that. I'll bet. Yeah. 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 I. I uh, I've friends in montana outside of whitefish yeah in fact we're going to be doing a workshop there this summer we did one last summer um they have this beautiful property just lovely montana forested property that they bought they they were coming from miami yeah and they bought the property sight unseen and they get there and they're unpacking their car and a train comes by and the train is right at the edge of the property just i mean like from year to your driveway yeah um, they're they're cool with it now. They're they're like oh, oh, we like there's it. Something about trains that are kind of lovely. You know? Yeah, yeah. If it were a truck going by, yeah. it would be a different thing. Yeah, no, I, I like trains. Uh, but yeah, also a train at a certain distance right. gets a lot more romantic. <laughs> yeah, that's you know? right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, we're sort of jumping around a bit, but I do want to like, how did you get to Crestone? What what was the uh, okay. Um, so, um, while there were a number of chapters in between um, St. Elmo and, and Creston, but the most significant one uh, was that um, in the late 90s, um, I felt led to try and um, talk about, write about the relationship between uh, wilderness experience and you know, wild places and a kind of an inward geography that, that might be referred to as wild, meaning mm. meaning like, uh, you know, the contemplative space that you feel when you, uh, you know, have a deep experience of silence or stillness. <clears throat> and um, I, I had been working in the backcountry in northern Utah, and you went to wilderness in the summers, and then living in Salt Lake City in the winter, where I started going to Quaker meeting. Because I was really drawn to the depth of the of the silent worship, the, the stillness, the 
and occasionally people speak out of the silence, but it's it's all about kind of entering into that stillness. So, and, and also at that time, I was dealing with some some horrendous, I had some horrendous bouts with depression, just, you know, like I would, I would get into a, a dark place and I couldn't get out for months. And what, what saved my ass, you know, what, what always I could depend on as, as a healing of some kind for some period of time was getting into a wild place, you know, by myself, mm-hmm. just going out into the wind rivers, for example, or, you know, any mountain range that was near Salt Lake. And, uh, you know, being on my own for four or five days, something about that rhythm and the space and the silence enabled me to, to, you know, find a way back into my own skin. Was it hard to motivate yourself to go? No, because nothing I, nothing else did me any good, you know, and it was just, it was either go or, or just stay stuck. Right. And, and so, but, you know, and then I, and then I started realizing that I needed to find daily practices that would help me um, access that same experience. So I started walking a lot in the foothills of of, uh, Salt Lake Valley there. We were very close to the foothills on the very northern edge of the city, so you could walk out our front door and be up in the foothills, you know, in about 10, 15 minutes. Mm. But anyhow... So I, I was really intrigued with this whole thing of stillness and silence and kind of an inward geography and, in, and kind of an inward wildness. And um, I was interested in seeing if I could if I could talk about the bridge between that and the kind of outward geography that seemed to facilitate that. So uh, I was, um, like I said, I was working as a backcountry ranger up in the High Uintas in the summer, Salt Lake and Quaker meeting in the winter. And... Gradually, this idea for a book started percolating up. Like, I, I need to explore this. And I knew how to talk about the outdoor stuff because I'd spent a lot of time outdoors, but I didn't really know how to talk about the spiritual stuff. And I was pretty new to the whole Quaker tradition. And is this your second book after the St. Elmo book, or had you done... Well, I'd done a bunch of kids' books. I'd done a dozen kids' books, but they were like the kind of kids' books that you do book reports on. Right. You know, Transcontinental Railroad or, or um, The Pony Express or... A lot of biographies on, on different people, okay. like like Thoreau and right. Aldo Leopold and right. people like that. But that had given you the discipline to sit down and write a yeah. book, yeah, get it done. Yeah, and... there were like five thousand word books, and right. you, you had to you had to to find the narrative. You had to find the, the core story in, in somebody's life, and then compress it in such a way that you could tell the story in five thousand words in a way that would be interesting to and hold a kid's attention. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a good training. It was as very a writer. Good. It was very good. As was newspaper stuff. Yeah. Know, it's it's like advertising copy or yeah. newspaper. Like pe- people often think like, oh I gotta start by writing my great novel. Yeah. Like you can start just doing stuff for hire. Yeah. And that'll really be helpful later. Well yeah, and I think that's the old fashioned way before we had, you know, a gazillion MFA programs was right. you, you do newspaper <laughs> stuff and then you Hemingway. Yeah. You know? Sure. I mean, lots of started people. a whole style. Yeah. 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 So that was kind of my experience, you know, starting mm-hmm. off as newspaper and then and kids' books and then other stuff. But yeah, so, so here I am, like in Salt Lake. Uh, let's see, that was in the early 90s, so I would have been um, 30, 36, 30, late 30s. And, um, you know, the first book that, that felt really meaningful was starting to percolate up, that had more to do with my own life. Mm-hmm. The other stuff was 
not that it wasn't meaningful because I chose, I was able to choose the biographies I wanted to do with this particular publisher. And so I wrote about people that I cared about, like Frio right. and Leopold and right. like John Muir and stuff like that. But, um, but this book was different and I knew it was different and I knew I wanted to, you know, share my own experience and, and, and all that. And so what I found out about was um, a program at Earlham School of Religion, which is a Quaker seminary in Indiana. And they had a program called the Ministry of Writing. And I thought, that's interesting. Hmm. And, you know, and so because the seminary was steeped in the Quaker, it was a Quaker seminary, because they offered that program, I got really interested. And um, I got my meeting in Salt Lake to recommend me, which meant that I got basically a free ride there for four years. Hmm. So, um, and that's like a creative writing program. Yeah. So, so it was like, you know, ministry of writing. So it was about, you know, any kind of writing that was sort of in service of the spirit, you know, to put it in kind of Quaker language. And so you you might be, you you know, you might be writing sermons, you might be writing social justice stuff, you know, like witness kind of writing Hmm. to, to speak out about something. Right. You might be, I, I kind of took it also as sort of um, writing as contemplative practice. Right. Uh, and then at that time, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of um, stuff going on where people were using writing and poetry as a healing modality, you know. and like Which for, is kind of what you were doing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, it kind of was. And uh, for example, but, you know, in, in those days, there was a woman named... Um, Pat, um, you know, she was working with homeless people around Amherst, Massachusetts, and so I, I went and got to know her a little bit, and um, yeah, just stuff like that was going on. That was that was kind of how I understood writing as ministry. But I also writing as ministry was also about telling your own spiritual autobiography or your, you know spiritual memoir, um, some experience where you something happened significantly, or you know that that would perhaps benefit somebody else. Had you been raised in Quaker no. or, or any kind of spiritual you know, practice? It's funny, Chris. I I live right down the road from a, a Quaker meeting, and I, I can remember going by as a teenager and asking my parents, or say, "What do they What do they do in there?" You know, and uh, you know, my parents didn't know anything about. Oh, well, they I think they just sit around in the silence. They don't talk much, you know. And I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting." But I grew up Episcopalian, and I cared about it, you know, I, I went to, uh, even though the class was brutal, brutally boring, um, confirmation class and stuff after school and whatnot, and got confirmed, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a significant moment, and it wasn't, you know, it was just sort of like, what was significant, a significant moment was getting stoned on hash about a month or two later, mm. like, wow, this is, this is transcendent. Did that make it into your spiritual memoir? Uh, well... Not really, because because this this thing talks. This book kind of starts at a later date. Huh. You know, it's it's not doesn't really include that portion of my life. But <laughs> but you know, I suppose I could have. You know, because right. right. I was looking for something authentic. You know, something that I could feel. Right. And I got that. You know, both from Quaker meeting and from wild places. Right. I mean, it was the difference between feeling alive and not feeling alive. Right. It's pretty black and white. Uh, so. Um, anyhow, uh, so that's what got me to seminary, and I spent four years, you know, at seminary you get sidetracked with a lot of things, because 
um, you know, you have to take classes like Old Testament, New Testament, that kind of thing, which I, I'd never read the Bible much. Um, but that was a good thing to do. And I, you know, I think I would recommend to any writer in our culture, they should have some literacy with the Bible. I mean, if mm. nothing else, you know, familiarize yourself with some of the metaphors and some yeah. of the language. And yeah, there's a there's a book I I got when I was in college. It was like uh, the Literary Guide to the Bible yeah. or something yeah. like that. That just really, I mean, it's amazing. It's like Shakespeare. You, yeah. you just you read it and you're like, oh, that's where that comes yeah, from. Exactly oh, right. geez, so many things you don't even think about. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, just a, a quick. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the Quaker faith, yeah, um, you know, I I probably the only thing I knew about Quakers was Quaker oats, yeah. So I, I thought they were the same as the Amish, yeah. Um, until I don't know how old I was when I I looked into it more deeply, right? Um, pacifists. That's a tricky one um, because Nixon was a Quaker. Oh, yeah, right? well, yeah. I mean, yeah, Nixon was a Quaker, at least nominally a Quaker. But, um, no, there are a lot of, you know, there were, there were, say, like during World War II, it was an interesting time because you had a lot of people, a lot of Quakers doing alternative service. Right. Along with the Mennonites and the, and the Church of the Brethren. You know, and they were in service camps all over the country, often, you know, forest service camps or whatever. Um, but you had other Quakers from the same family who would who would enlist, you know. So pacifist is a little tricky. Um, what I would say is that um, rather than say pacifist, I would say Quakers look for for nonviolent ways to solve conflicts and and for nonviolent ways to address things like war. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're pacifist, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Sure. Um, it's a last resort. Sort yeah. Of thing. Yeah. Is it also... And some Quakers would argue with that. You know, it's not... I don't think it's a uniform uh, concept or, right. or belief in the tradition, you know. Well, that that leads to what I was about to ask. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Quakers also believe that everyone has a direct connection to yeah. the divine. You right. don't need to go through yeah. a hierarchy. Yeah, so in that sense, you know, you could say Quakers are really agnostic in that sense. Mm. You know, it's about your experience is really primary. And the still small voice is that a the Quaker still small voice is is a biblical term that could could very much um, apply to Quakers and I think mm-hmm. um, you know something that that I definitely thought about as I was working on this book um, yeah because Quakers Quakers believe that um, we have a sense of can develop a sense and cultivate a sense of an inward teacher you know and inward guidance right um which you know there are other other traditions that maybe would wouldn't have any problem with that notion but but quakers kind of emphasize it you know and Mm. um so yeah very experiential um and um less oriented perhaps in some communities to say like scripture in the in the liberal Quaker tradition, there's maybe less less um, biblical orientation, at least in a contemporary setting, uh, which some which other more traditional Quakers might uh, might uh, point to as a weakness. But were uh, the, the Beringer brothers were they Quakers? They were um, the anti-war folks. Yeah, yeah, like 
chained uh, themselves to yeah, a... Yeah, no, they were they were Catholic. Oh, were they? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Liberation theology. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I feel like there, there's a real, um, a lot of commonality between, say, like contemplative Catholics and Quakers, you know, like monastic spirituality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As you were describing the sort of cultivation of the inner voice, I was thinking how, um, you know, Thoreau, who you, you mentioned earlier, and the sort of transcendentalist yeah. literary movement or, or spiritual yeah. movement yeah. is like an American reflection of Buddhism in some mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. And and I wonder if, you know, Quakerism, if that's the word, Quakerism, yeah. uh, is an American religion, right? It didn't, it wasn't brought over from Europe, was it? Yeah, it was English. Oh, was it, it English? Yeah, it originated in um, the hill country of, of um, oh, okay. Britain and Early 1600s. And the Shakers? Shakers um, are, are kind of a little offshoot of Quakers, but but um, they developed their own theology that was, was very, um, very different from Quakers. But I think the same seed, mm. you know, sprouted, sprouted right. into Quakers and Shakers. And the reason they're called Quakers, if I remember correctly, is that at some point, uh, people felt they they were possessed by this uh, spirit, and they would have convulsions and physical. Yeah, yeah. I so mean, they quaked and shaked. Yeah. I mean, you know, just to give you a minor example of that, um, I had this friend in seminary uh, named Dale, and uh, we went to the same meeting, and um, sometimes we'd sit on the you know same bench, you know, fairly close to, close to one another. And I could always tell when when Dale was going to get up and say something because he'd start wiggling and, you know, kind of get a little shimmy going, you know, and um, and then he would he would stand up and give his ministry. So oh. you know, I suppose that that could be thought of in, in the same way. Um, yeah, I, I think um, again it's that experience of the of the spirit. You know, Pentecostal churches have have the same idea that the the spirit kind of enters the room. Mm. Um, they express it in a really different way, right. like talking in tongues and whatnot. But, right. but it's the same thing for Quakers. We just—it's more of an inward sort of quiet thing that happens. We're not yeah. rolling down the aisles or right. you know, <laughs> doing that, just handling snakes and whatnot. I think the last church service I attended was in San Francisco. It was the uh, the the ministry of Saint John Coltrane. Nice. And they, it was this little place on Divisadero, block from where I was living, and they had a, an icon of John Coltrane with his sax and you know holding three fingers up, and uh, it was fantastic. It was just like a totally jazz based, sure, religious. You know, it's all all roads lead to the same mountaintop, right? I, I think so. I mean, I you know I'm I'm kind of a universalist in that sense, and and um, no, I mean. Our Love Supreme, Love Supreme by John Coltrane. I mean, yeah. that's that's about as spiritual as it gets. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but um, yeah, no, I, I think there. I think you're right. I think when you when you get down to the, the core experience <clears throat> of most religions, you know, you're you're looking at some some sense of transcendence, some sense of um, otherness, some sense of being part of something bigger. Some yeah, you know, 
I think I often think about the fact that um, um, a friend of mine just yesterday, a friend of mine paid me a, a great compliment. She said, she said, you are very good at being a human animal. Huh. And um, I think, you know, that I'm still thinking about the, the implications of that, but I feel like so many of the religious traditions or spiritual traditions uh, more broadly are designed to negate the unique human condition of, of that um, consciousness of consciousness, right? Yeah. Homo sapien sapien. Yeah. The hominid that knows that it knows. Yeah. Right. Like, all the animals know. Yeah. They all know. They yeah. know they exist. They yeah. know they're hungry. They know it's winter or winter's coming or what night's coming or whatever. They're yeah. all consciousness is everywhere. Apparently we're the one that knows we know, mm-hmm. which gives us great advantages, but costs us so much. Yeah. So all these traditions are be here now. Yeah. You know, stop the monkey voice. Yeah. Stop the chattering monkey in your brain. Yeah. Uh, you know, find the silence. Yeah, in a way, find find that kind of animal spontaneity. Yeah, yeah, and and just animal awareness, yeah. right? Yeah. And so we do all these things to cultivate it or to find it. We go hunting or yeah. fishing or skydiving or you know whatever yeah. something that shocks us out of this hyper meta awareness. That's right. Um. Anyway, I don't know what the connection there was, uh, but but it I think it relates back to the book that you were talking about. I don't want to get away from that. Oh, sure. Well, well, yeah, and, and because the inner and outer nature, yeah, right, is so you go outward to go inward. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely, and um, yeah. So so that was kind of that whole period of time, you know, the, the seminary experience. Was kind of filling in a, a a stage that led to coming here in Creston, which is. Were you, you working know. on the book at the seminary? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, you'd yeah. already fleshed out the idea, yeah. and then they gave you a place to. Yeah, I, I had I had a lot of good support there. That's you know, fantastic. And, and at times, you know, I had even a uh, one one semester, I had a <laughs> I had a special office to go and work on the book, which was funny because. It was a beautiful little cottage, um, and it was it had been the um, the writing cottage of a man named Elton True Trueblood. It's a good Quaker name, right? Elton Trueblood, who in fact was was somebody that Nixon um, went to for spiritual advice. Mm. But Elton Trueblood Blood was a very severe looking man with those kind of nineteen uh, fifty sort of dark. Uh, dark glasses, but but that had steel r- rims along the bottom. If you can picture that, kind of like sure. a, a, the glass, the kind of glasses you might expect a physicist to wear. That's what I was picturing. Yeah, yeah like Oppenheimer or <laughs> yeah. somebody. Yeah, and there was a portrait of Elton that that s- stood on the wall about six feet off the ground uh, and looked directly at my desk where I where I was working on this book. <laughs> And so I always kind of felt like if I was screwing around or, you know, <laughs> the visage of Elton Trueblood was staring down at me. He's like, young man, <laughs> you know, keep working. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, um, yeah, so I was working on the book there and, and I I, um, I had some interesting publishing adventures with publishers. 
while I was still at, at seminary. Uh, yeah, that that um, ultimately didn't pan out, but almost did. And um, anyhow, I got back to the to the West. Uh, we at that time we had a little baby, a six months old baby who had been born at seminary. And we'd been going back and forth between uh, Indiana and southwestern Colorado, where my wife grew up. And where did you meet her? In Durango. Oh, okay. I was down there. Right. We took a writing class together. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we had we owned that place down by her parents' house. Um, we had sold our house in Salt Lake and been able to buy that place, and so that was our home in Colorado that we came back to all the time during seminary and before. Um, and uh, when we got back there with this little little baby, we started realizing that um, we didn't want to spend the rest of our lives just a mile down the road from the family, hmm. even though the family was great in many, many ways. But we just kind of felt like we need to spread our wings a little bit. And we right. something about the seminary community was so rich for us, you know, the all these kind of seekers and... and uh, people looking to, to make sense of their lives in a new way. and um, It was just a, just a rich community to be a part of. So we started thinking about, well, where could we, where could we find that, mm-hmm. something like that? And we knew about the, the monastery over here, the Carmelites um, um, Spiritual Life Center. Uh, we'd been reading their, their uh, publications, and, um, um, and they were really interesting because they were kind of earthy mystics, mm-hmm. basically. Of the you know in the Carmelite tradition, um, Saint John of the, the Cross and Teresa of Avila. So we started corresponding with them, and um, just I was looking for a place to finish the book, and I thought, well, maybe we could just go over to this place, Crestone, for um, the winter. You know, get the book done, and we'll hang out with the Carmelites, and you know, see what that place is like. Right. I knew about Crestone a little bit because I I had lived just you know an hour or two to the north. This is before Airbnb, so you could probably get a cheap rental. Yeah, we were able to find a good place to rent just down the street from here. And uh, so we spent the winter on a great routine of, you know, getting to work on the book early in the morning and, and walking a lot and walking a lot with my daughter, who was six months old at that time. And um, and then, you know, the book found its way to a small press in Denver, which published it. And... Um, then went belly up a couple of years later, and, and then another sp- small press picked up the book, and I, I kind of feel like it's never really found its its audience completely, you know. And what's the book called? It's called First Church of the Higher Elevations. Oh, that's a great title. Yeah, it's just you know, and it's it's basically what we were talking about earlier, you know, that experience of wild inward wildness, outward wildness, making connections between the two. Um, First and, Church of the Higher Elevations. Yeah. That is a great title. Yeah, thanks. Is that a phrase from something? Or? Oh, we just invented it. My, a buddy of mine and I, when we lived up in St. Elmo, we, we decided that we were going to start a, um, a marrying service where we would uh, you know, marry people in the First Church of the Higher Elevations. Ah, nice. Yeah, it was just, it was just, we were just joking around. Right. You know? But... I always People look. should get married when they're lightheaded, I think. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah, it was just a it was just kind of a funny phrase for to us. Yeah. But then over the years it, it kind of took on more significance, you know. And um anyhow, so that was that, and that's what got, got us here to Creston. So you came here to finish the book, hang out with the Carmelite nuns. 
uh, and you just never left. You fell in love with the place. So a few things happened where uh, I was able to to find some meaningful work. Uh, one mm. was that I got hired by the same seminary that I'd been a student at to go back and teach in the Ministry of Writing program. Ah, okay. So I did that. I, I would go back and teach intensive classes four times a year. Ah, so you could afford to live in the yeah. middle of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. And then that um, morphed into a job with Adam State, mm-hmm. where I taught for 10 years in the Down English in department. Alamosa. Yeah. Okay, right. So those two things kind of fell into place and made it right. you know, viable to live here. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, but there were a lot of times getting back to our original one of our original themes in the conversation where, you know, we both felt restless. We were kind of like, is this the place? This is kind of a weird place. And, you know, pick up the eagle and you go, whoa, man, this is, there's some really strange people here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the eagle's the local newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's still, you know, it's, you, you kind of, you get kind of get used to the eccentricities of this community and they're kind of delightful, really. Mm. Uh, you know, I, at least to me they are. Um, yeah, as long as they're they're no like corpses with sparkles and uh, yeah, you know what, what was the the name of the cult out there? The oh, love is love one. has yeah. won. Yeah. yeah, occasionally you get something like that, yeah. you know, rolling Goes into off town, the rails. But, but you know, those things come and go. I mean, um, yeah, and, and individuals as well that are a little off the rails, you know, and they come and go. Um, but the core of the community that stays, I like quite a bit. And, yeah. Uh, well, no one's here by accident. Right. I, I love that. Uh, there's a filtering mechanism. Yeah. Uh, that that seems... I, I love that about travel, too. Like, yeah. you, you know, you're in Nepal, and you, you hiked four days from the nearest town, and you sit down, and there's a, a, a Westerner there. Yeah. They're probably going to be a really interesting person. Yeah, that's right. You know, because right. they, they made some effort to get there yeah. or some weird shit happened that led them there. Very true. I feel like Crestone has that quality. I think you're right, Chris. You know, and, and um, it's so interesting. There's never a dull story when you when you ask somebody, well, how did you end up living here? You know, it's always pretty cool. In fact, um, yeah, one thing we, we thought of as a fundraiser at the Eagle, something that I'd like to see happen sometime, is to have an evening where you, you know, kind of a story evening. Mm-hmm. You know, where people just tell their stories. They're, they're how I how ended I up in Crestone. They're always good. <laughs> yeah. And you might have to curate it a little bit. Sure. You know, yeah. you might have to pick a few people that have really good stories, yeah. you know. Cause or or know people, how to tell them. Or know how to tell them. I think them. everyone's got good stories, but not everyone knows how to tell them. Right. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, you know, especially here, you know, if you open the door a crack, you get you get the whole, um, you know, the whole load of hay, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah you don't want to let them hold the mic right yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just I'll, I'll hold the mic yeah 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 that's funny yeah well i, I think that's part of small town life too right sure. like and and also you know circling way back to the beginning maybe before i turned on the mics uh talking about hitchhiking yeah the feeling of and it's one of the things I love about the podcast, not in your case, but occasionally I'll be doing a podcast with someone and I'll I'll feel like no one's ever asked them before. Uh-huh. Like no one's ever, this person's never told his story yeah, before. How great, how great to be able to to open that door for them. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's almost, I mean, it's fantastic for the audience. It's fantastic for me. But I'm thinking, for example, there was a guy 
I went to LA and, and my brakes started squeaking and I, you know, just looked online or whatever. And there was a mechanic nearby and people seemed to like him. And I went down and his name was Lodi, L-O-D-I. Yeah. And uh, he was Pakistani and he had a little shop and he had a guy working with him. And so the guy was checking the brakes and Lodi and I were standing in his office and there was a photograph of him a little younger than now. He was probably 65 or something. In the photo, he looked about 50 or 45 and, and he was wearing a motorcycle jacket and he was standing in front of a sign that said, welcome to the Arctic Circle. And I said, Lodi, is that you? And he said, yeah. And he was a man of few words, right? Yeah. And I said, what were you doing in the Arctic Circle? He said, oh, I was depressed. Uh, that was when I, I, I was 50. I turned 50 and I was depressed because I would never go to the Arctic Circle. And my wife said, go, go to the Arctic Circle. So I went. He said, well, why did you want to go to the Arctic Circle? He said, well, when I was a child, I watched a James, uh, uh, John Wayne movie about the, um, the gold rush in yeah. the Yukon. Yeah. And I always wanted to go to the Yukon. Mm. But I knew I'd never go. Yeah. So my wife said, go. So I went. I said, so you went on a motorcycle? He said, yeah. Was by yourself? Yeah. How long did that take? Oh, I don't know, three months? Wow. So you're 50 years old, you're an auto mechanic in LA, you're Pakistani, you get a motorcycle, you ride to the Arctic Circle. I love it. And he's like, yeah. I said, Lodi, do you know what a podcast is? He said, no. I said, well, it's like a radio show, but it's on the internet so people can listen whenever yeah. they want. And um, and I, I do this and, and I like to talk to people who've had unusual experiences. Would you be willing? Could I come and do this with you? Yeah. And he sort of sat there for a while and then he said, well, if you want to hear a story, maybe I should tell you when I rode a motorbike from London to Islamabad in 1967. Wow. <laughs> wow. Like, come on, man. Wow. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a, a special one. And did he did he? Uh, and he said he was a man of few words. But once he got going on his story, did he kind of did he kind of get into the flow of it? Yeah, I went back. I, we agreed to meet the next morning before he opened the garage. Yeah. So I was there at six thirty or something, mm -hmm. and I was using lapel mics at the time. Yeah. And uh, so we were sitting in his office and and we were talking and. And yeah, it took more, you know, I definitely had to take him to the next step and the next step and the next step. Um, but there was a moment when he was talking about his parents and and he was the black sheep of the family. So it turns out he's from this prominent Pakistani family, his, uh -huh. his sister's uh concert pianist and his brother teaches mathematics at oxford and they grew up in a house that winston churchill had lived in when he was the chancellor or whatever he was of you know occupied india at that point it was india and so all the stuff you would never have guessed about the guy right yeah and and he was just like he was he worked on steamboats and he fixed steam engines and then he was in he found himself in europe and he didn't have any money and 
And he contacted his father and he said, well, I'd like to learn to be a Mercedes-Benz mechanic and there's a program here, but it costs this much money. I don't have the money. And his father was like, I'll send the money. Don't worry, we'll take care of it. And I said something like, you know, given the family background and the way that you kind of just went off in your own direction, that's really cool. Like your parents must have been really nice people yeah. that they supported you, yeah. even though you weren't like your siblings and you weren't like their expectations must have been. Right. And he just sort of, he, he took off his lapel mic. He said, I need some water. And he got up and I could see he was crying. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, it was just this, you know, I think he, it, it's like he hadn't told that story and he hadn't for a long time probably thought about how great his parents were, mm. you know. Mm. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fantastic. What a great experience, yeah. Yeah. I, do, you, do you ever think about all the, the stories that, that that don't get told that no that you know all the time all the people that people don't reach and people that are sitting there with with great stories to tell that nobody... dude I I've thought about like you know I think about all sorts of different configurations of a podcast yeah one of them is go to a park or a cafe or whatever and just randomly pick someone yeah like just oh that guy sitting there alone walk over say hey i do a podcast would you be willing to talk do you have time are you willing just throw it's like you know throw a dart and see what you hit in any direction yeah that's one i've thought of i would love to do that the other one i've I've talked about uh, a fair bit on the podcast and the backstory is I this is early when I first started the podcast, I interviewed a guy who's a Jungian analyst in, in LA. Mm-hmm. Now I'll keep this very short because regular listeners have heard this story a thousand times. Um, but uh really cool guy. I don't remember how I even got in touch with him. Um, but he he was a Jungian analyst. He was probably in his late eighties at the time. And um his father had written somewhere over the rainbow and um brother can you spare a dime and and wow. a bunch of these amazing you know 20s 30s classics and so we we do this podcast we, we probably talked for two and a half three hours or something and he told me all these amazing stories about his parents who had an open relationship in the 20s wow and his his father and his father's best friend was his writing partner. Mm-hmm. So they wrote these songs together. Yeah. And at some point the mother was now sleeping with the father's friend. Wow. And this guy that I'm talking to came back from college or the military or something. <laughs> and they're sitting there. It's, it's, it's dad, dad's friend and mom <laughs> and him. And dad says, listen, you're going to notice mom sleeping with larry now and that's totally cool they make a great couple and we all love each other and you know don't be concerned yeah anyway he tells me all these great stories yeah and then the next day he he uh emails me and he says chris i really enjoyed chatting with you yesterday but i i kind of got going and i told you things that people don't know even in my family uh-huh. And also, if my patients were to listen to this, it would interfere with their therapy and all. That. So I, I'm not asking you to to 
delete the episode, but please don't post it until I die. Yeah. And I thought, what an interesting thing. And so then I got this idea of going to hospices and interviewing people wow. under the with the understanding this will not be public while you're alive. Wow. Um, and so it's like a chance to, you know, obviously we don't want to get into anything legally difficult, you yeah. know, like accusing someone right. or something. But, but to talk with someone with the freedom of like we're both acknowledging our our mortality here and if there are things that you want to say but christopher hitchens wrote this great essay he said you should always write posthumously Mm. i think about that sometimes yeah sure um and i think we should live posthumously yeah right we should live with this knowledge that this is fleeting yeah. And so every major decision should be made in the context of like, I'm just passing through yeah, here. Yeah. There's nothing permanent yeah. about any of this. Right. Yeah. That's great. That's a great story. And did you do a lot of those uh, interviews with hospice folks? I haven't done any. Oh, it's such no. a brilliant idea, Chris. Well, and that's why I talk about it on the podcast a lot because I'm hoping someone else will pick it up. Like yeah. maybe someone who works in a hospice, yeah. you know, or. Well, see, I mean, to me, that would be. Um, that would that would be a form of ministry. Yeah, you know what I mean. Because yeah. you're really serving somebody in in a place of need. I would think um, that that could be it could be such a, a rich experience for the person in hospice. I would guess, and for everyone listening. And, yeah, and for the you family. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's beautiful. Um, assuming that the person in hospice is with it enough to tell right. the story. Right. You know? Yeah, I, and that's another reason I, I talk about it often because uh, I'm hoping someone listening to this will know someone or, or they themselves work in a hospice because I think you you need to have, you know, if I'm going to come in and do it, I would need to have someone on the staff who would say, okay, you know, uh, Mary is the person you want to talk to because right. she's totally mentally here. She's yeah. able to sign a form, yeah. a consent form. And, and and maybe like, and this is the time of day you should come in because she's exactly. really alert you know, right. from 12 to 2. And she loves to tell stories yeah. and she's a talker and, and yeah. she's funny. And yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want it, I, you know, I wouldn't want it to be exploitative yeah. in any way, Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, I there's a program in Holland uh, and man, we could do so much more of this, but we don't. But um, where college students are offered free room and board if they live in the building where the old people are nice and so they eat with the old people and hang out everyone wins benefits everybody everyone i mean i I love what's happening down here near the school with living wisdom you know tell me about that well it's just a it's a it's a non-profit um organization that that has set up the plans anyway nothing has been built yet for an elders community right next to the school. So mm-hmm. it's just uphill from the school. And I think they just got a major grant, which may mean that, you know, they'll be breaking ground maybe next spring or something like that. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, the idea is to have simple dwellings, inexpensive, but, but kind of a cluster of, you know, independent um, living spaces. I, I don't know if there's a... A building where people connect, or like a common 
common building or, or anything like that. But um, but I love that it's right next to the school, and I'm yeah. sure that even though that hasn't been planned necessarily, or, or put it this way, there, there are no specific plans to to um, that I know of to uh, have the two communities interacting. It's going to happen just yeah. organically, you know? right? And and that'll be really rich, I think, for both communities. Yeah. Yeah, one of the great tragedies of American culture is the, you know, that it makes economic sense to fracture us and divide yeah. us into ever smaller units so we buy more crap and yeah. don't cooperate. But one of the reasons I came to Crestone is that I want to try to get back to uh, a more integrated, cooperative uh symbiotic kind of community model yeah and i think scale is really important sure you know and for people living you know in cities that could mean okay reduce it down to you and the five people who live on your floor of the apartment building yeah yeah. i mean it could be something like a community garden could be the 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 focal point of that or you know right Um, yeah no that's great i read somewhere recently someone did a study and they they discovered or no it happened actually it was in Denmark or something I forget where it was but they the government had a program where if you wanted chickens they would supply chickens and teach you how to take care of chickens and yeah. build a coop and all that kind of stuff yeah and and they found that if one out of every three households had a few chickens the entire egg industry became superfluous because there were enough eggs for everybody yeah. And it's food scraps. Sure. So it's like costs nothing yeah. except a little attention and yeah. it's fun and it's cool. And everybody benefits. Yeah. There's so many things like that we yeah. could be doing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But. Well, yeah. And, and a lot of times those those kinds of ideas, um, you know, find it find a way to uh, to be jump-started in, in little, little communities, smaller yeah. communities. Yeah. Yeah, I think of a place like Crestown as a lifeboat. You know, um, not that when this culture collapses and that everyone's going to go to Crestone, but but that there we need to have examples of how of sustainability and mutually cooperative community so that when the shit does hit the fan, it exists. It's like a seed bank or something. And Vaclav Havel had that idea in Czechoslovakia, didn't he, with the Velvet Revolution or Mm. prior to that? Um, where you know, try to cultivate these little micro communities of of creative people, or you know, uh, clear thinkers, or good leaders, or whatever, so that when the uh, Soviet-friendly government did collapse, there'd be something to emerge. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, we've been going for uh, over an hour and a half. I, I don't want to take up your whole day, but... Uh, I'll, go, I'll go as long as you want, Chris. I mean, this is fun. <laughs> well, let's do a part two at some point. All right. Yeah, because I'd love to talk more about the literary side of yeah, things. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I love talking about writers and, yeah. and books and poets. And yeah, we could, we could definitely have a good conversation. I'm sure we have a lot in common. Yeah. Uh, 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 Edward Abbey, I imagine you're probably into Robinson Jeffers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Gary Snyder, Wendell Berry, who else? Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard, sure. Yeah. From Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. No, yeah. she's a great writer. Yeah, yeah no, that I yeah, I, I liked her stuff. So people can find and you've and you've published how many books? 
I've got you've given me a couple. You yeah, got um, the say the title again. The 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 no the the first church of the higher elevations. Yeah, that's kind of a sleeper. You know, it's sort of been under the radar. But I, I feel is like, it available? It's in print. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So people can get it online. Yeah, yeah. They or can get it online. do do you sell books through your personal site or not really? Okay. Um, but they they can get the link. I th- I think to to my publisher through my website, which is PeteHowardAnderson.com. Um, and uh, yeah, that stuff is all available online. Um, and you just came out with a book, Reading Colorado. Uh, yeah, that one's pretty pretty hot off the press. And that's, again, you know, sort of in the tradition of, or in the desire to be a good student of place. It's um, a collection of writings about various places in Colorado. Not mine, not my writings, but... Um, you know, different writers and different um, chroniclers of their place, time, and place all over the yeah. state. Yeah, I was looking through that. I, I, I there are a bunch of contemporary people, obviously, um, but there's also some stuff I, I'm really looking forward to reading about Drop City, for example. Oh yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, a friend of mine and I were driving up from Texas, and we came through what what is that town? Uh, uh, Trinidad, Trinidad, yeah. Colorado, and he. Just sort of because there was nothing to do, he Googled it or Wikipedia it, and it's like this little town we're driving through, and like huge labor uh, strike, Pinkertons or somebody, like people were killed. Oh, Ludlow, Ludlow, the yeah. the mining strike, yeah. big event in yeah. American yeah. labor history. Um, it was the capital of sex change operations yeah, for yeah. years yeah. because the surgeon relocated there for some reason yeah. from San Francisco or whatever. People from all over the world were flying to this town to have sex change operations. Yeah. Uh, In fact, I think my, my publisher, same publisher who did my books, just came out with a book about that guy. Really? Yeah. Unbelievable. And Drop City, which yeah. was like one of the first commune yeah. 60s counterculture. Yeah. It's you would just see no trace of any of that no, now you drive really. through. I, yeah. I don't yeah, I don't know if there's anything left of Drop City, but um I've never tried to find the, the site itself. It's actually north of Trinidad just a little bit. But the guy who who uh, who wrote the who wrote a book about Drop City who was there in the early days is a super interesting guy and and a pretty good writer. Um, I, at least I think he is. Um, but his his excerpt is in the book. He lives out in Berkeley now. Mm. I, I don't know what became of you know what he what he did for the rest of his life. But but at that time at Drop City, that was sure an important um, sort of focal point for the counterculture. And and uh, it was it was kind of like um, like a lifeboat. You know, like mm. you were saying earlier that that metaphor of a lifeboat for you know people kind of going across the country chasing that alternative dream right you know it was a place to stop and find well what's going on here you know yeah and um yeah no it's there's a lot of really interesting stuff around the state that people don't know that much about you know and and uh some of the contemporary stuff was some of the most fun to to find yeah and of course yeah a lot of beat history in denver and neil cassidy and all that yeah all right Peter Anderson. You go by Pete, though, right? It works. Yeah, either yeah. one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I, always, I, I have a thing about names. I I don't know what it is, but I find, um, first of all, people who get my name wrong always call me Steve. 
Steve. So I just feel like I should just What's go by that? Steve. I What's, should just change my name. That? I don't know, Steve. Why, huh? why fight it? Yeah. yeah, Steve. I don't know. Um, yeah, but I also feel like names are so arbitrary yeah. in our culture, right? Yeah. Like if someone's name was, you know, contemplating the rising sun, I'd remember that. Yeah. You know, but it's some name off a list, you know, like. You know, um, I used to ask um, people in my writing class at, at Adam State to um, to write me a, a little, uh, you know, a paragraph about how they got their names or if mm. there are any stories behind their names. Mm. Or it could be their surname or their, you know, first or second name, whatever. That was always fun because a lot of mm. people, you know, did have little stories. Yeah. Um, which if you can if you can find that, that gives your name a little more significance. Yeah, my story is that my dad was raised Catholic and went to a Catholic college, uh, St. Vincent's College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And in the in the course of sort of an intellectual awakening at college, uh, he had a spiritual crisis, mm-hmm. right? The more he read and thought, the less... He could believe what he grew up believing. Yeah. And one night it came to a head and he he had a professor that he admired and respected and he went to the professor and he confessed, funny word to use in this case, but he confessed his wavering faith. Yeah. And this professor said to him, Frank, I haven't told anyone this yet, but I'm I'm leaving the church because I'm in the same boat you're in. Oh, wow. And that was Father Chris. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I met him years later, uh, many years later. Obviously, I wasn't conceived at that point. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was a really, he was a liberation theologist. Uh-huh. He had been in Nicaragua and yeah. El Salvador in the 80s, you know, when the death squads were happening and he had... Um, I think I know about the Beringer brothers by way of him mm-hmm. that he had known them or or something, um, but yeah, he he ended up remaining a Christian, but um, no longer a priest, yeah, and uh, much more of a like a social activist right. kind of yeah uh, Christian, yeah, cool, yeah, that's yeah. a good story. See, that's great. I, my dad named me Peter because he liked the idea of. Um, Peter Pierre and Francis Stone, uh, rock, you know, and he liked the idea of um, that sort of strength, or whatever. Um, it's kind of ironic or interesting that I end up living next to these big rocks and stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, good. I hope some. I, I hope some people uh, get a hold of uh, the First Church of the Higher Elevation. Oh, that'd be great. That'd yeah. be great. Yeah. yeah. All right. So this was part one with Pete Anderson. Part two to follow. Said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation 
ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.